Okay, so we're at the end of Exodus. This is very hot. I'll hold it out here. Uh, we're at the end of Exodus, and what we're seeing is like the story's conclusion. So what I'm going to do for us is we're going to look at the narrative and at the, this thing that we just read at the end of chapter 40, discuss it briefly, and we will transition to what I think is maybe my attempt at practical application of what we have just done for the summer as a community in Mosaic. And so as we look through this section, the chapters that was just read this morning, chapter 40, is the very end of what is a section from 25 to 40 that is mostly the tabernacle, the temple, pre, right? Okay, so it's this tent that they come and that they're going to set up, and there are all of these painstaking details. From chapter 25 through 31, it is Moses getting this vision and these painstaking details of what he's supposed to do and how he's supposed to make this thing happen. And it's this uh, just replica, this, this thing that you can kind of try to experience of what he saw and was in on the top of Mount Sinai. Last week we talked about the golden calf, and this is a story that's in the middle of this long section, and so it's very much connected into what is happening here. And I want to bring this part up because last week we talked about in the golden calf story, what you see is Moses has been up on Mount Sinai, he comes down, the people have sinned, there's this thing that's happened, and there's all of this thing in these three chapters around the golden calf that the author of Exodus wants us to see that there's distance growing between the people of God and Yahweh himself. That there's space that's happening that hadn't been there up until this point. Previous 25 chapters, hardly no space. Now, all of a sudden, after the golden calf, lots of space. And the space seems to be growing. And there seems to be this continuing gap. But then we get this narrative that picks up right after the golden calf story, chapter 35 through 40, where we go back to the temple. We're back, or to the tabernacle. We're back to where we're seeing the people do the thing in painstaking detail that God had called them to do. Now, part of this is just the repetitive nature of ancient Near Eastern text. Part of this is so that we see, like, or hear this again of how important the tabernacle is. But part of this is a new narrative. What we see is that the people had abandoned what God had called them to. And then had decided that they would still do what he had said they said they would do. And what we see is that there is a God that is willing to meet, still meet with them and continue to be among them. So some time has passed here from the golden calf. We're here where Moses is standing at the tabernacle and the glory ascends upon it. From that point, from the golden calf, a few weeks, we have now been at the foot of Mount Sinai, which started in ch like chapter 18, somewhere around that 15, somewhere around there. I don't remember off the top of my head. We've been here for nine months. And there, in two weeks, the people of God in the wilderness will celebrate the first Passover. And so we're that far removed from what all has happened in Exodus. So we've been at the foot of Mount Sinai for nine months. They have now been wandering the desert for a year. They're going to wander for a much longer, uh, spoiler alert. But they are now in this moment, in this space. And so now they're here. And they're doing what they're supposed to do. And that's what this author is trying to get you to see. More than the, well not more than, along with the repetitive nature because it was an oral culture and you were supposed to memorize this and you were supposed to have it like in your brain in a way that you would not forget and that was the way they would have studied this and held on to it. You see this thing happening, what they're doing, 
is the author is making clear post the calf and all of these things that are changing, post this moment where everything had kind of shifted for the people of God, you see that they're doing everything exactly the way that God had commanded them to do. That was what was reiterated again and again. And in all the chapters up until chapter 40, you see that the makers make the things just the way that they had been called to make them. The, the builders that build the things just the way they were called to build them. Moses does the thing just the way Moses was supposed to do it. It's very clear that this is exactly the way that God had commanded them. They had not abandoned or taken up novelty at this point. They did not receive the instructions from Yahweh and think to themselves, maybe we should add some glitter here or like something fancy right there, you know, like maybe we should swap red for purple because like it just would look a little bit cooler and you know, more subtle tones. I don't know what you would think in the desert, but they didn't do that. They followed exactly what the Lord had asked them to do, just to the very detail. And we should see something here that the author is begging us to see, which is that you do not approach the Lord on your terms. You approach the Lord of hosts, Yahweh, creator of all, king of earth, you approach and come to and near his holiness on his terms and his terms alone. And so as the temple or the tabernacle is being built and later the temple, what we see is there's this thing where you do it exactly the way that Yahweh calls you to do it. There's no, uh, he's not looking for innovation here. It's pretty simple. Follow the rules. Do the things that you're supposed to do and you will then be able to or at least we think be able to, enter into the presence of God. And so at the end of this, there's this moment that should shock all of us. We should be like, you should ask this question. If you weren't paying close enough attention, I get it. When things are being read out loud, oftentimes I don't really pay that much attention either, and you forget about the context. Verse after verse that Mackenzie just read, we see that God, or that Moses has done exactly what Yahweh has said to do. It was on the right month, the right day, everything was in its right place. And the glorious ends, and you're like, yes, this is exactly what's supposed to happen. But then Moses can't enter into the tabernacle. And we're left with this tension. There, there's a, a sense that this has all been unresolved. Why did they do everything just like they were supposed to do, and then Moses not be able to enter? Why was it that he could enter into the glory just a few chapters before when they weren't doing what they were supposed to do? And we talked about that, how there was this different way in which he entered into the glory. There was a different like, a process for it now. And things changed, but yet the glory of God was still coming. The glory of God was still present among them. And Moses was able to interact with it, to, to come up into it. And yet in this moment... There's this thing that happens where Moses cannot go into the tent of meeting. He cannot go into the tabernacle. And I think, and want to contend with you this morning, that what we see here is not a God of wrath and vengeance. And not a God that has distanced himself and says that you no longer can come into my presence and into my glory because of your failures and your shortcomings. Not a vindictive God, not a God that holds on to grudges, not a God that holds on to the past. But I think what the author of Exodus is begging us to see in this moment 
is that this is a God that is gracious and kind and will fulfill his promises better and more than you could ask, want, or imagine. Because what I want to contend is happening here is not that Moses can't enter into the tabernacle because of the sins of the past. The text is showing that the sins have been forgiven. That was washed clean. That was done for. It was atoned for, mediated for. Everybody had moved on. The new, tab- or the new tablets had been given, the new laws. Moses' face shone like the light of the glory of the presence that he had encountered. All was well. All was good. And there's nothing in the text that indicates that they went off of the covenant that they had promised to be with God. In fact, what you're seeing is that this is the covenant that they went back into as once and for all. It's this new kind of thing. In the same way that there was this drastic shift in response to the golden calf, you see that there is a re-upping or a re-anting, whatever you want to call it, of God's promise to give his presence to his creation. Some of the ways I think that you can see this or understand this is that in our passage, what you get is that Moses looks at the tabernacle and he says, it is finished. This is the exact same language that you get in Genesis 2 when God looks over creation and he says it is finished and it is good. We're supposed to see an interplay here. We're supposed to understand that this is once again in Exodus creation language. We are recreating what had been decreated by the fall and evil and man's propensity to go and define for themselves what they think is right and what they think they should do. For them to, to define or try to make and shape their own gods and their own understanding. And, and Yahweh is promising here that this is the recreation moment. That they are the people that he intends them to be. That he will dwell amongst them in their presence with them. And the spirit comes down, the, the, or the, the God comes down in the cloud sits over the tabernacle. What I actually think is happening here is not that God is angry with Moses and says you have to pay one more punishment. I actually think that as they have come back into the covenant, what God is doing here is he is revealing his presence more fully and deeply than he had at any point up until Exodus chapter 40. That the presence and the glory of God is so thick is so tangible, is so full and overpowering that we are not to see here a vindictive God, but we are to see here a glorious and holy God that longs and desires to give himself fully to his people and to his creation. This is the God that Exodus is pointing to. This is who Yahweh is as we know his name. The whole point of this is to understand his character and his nature. The whole thing that was repeated again and again in Exodus is so that you would know my name. You would know who I am. And Moses stands on the brink of the tabernacle wanting to enter and he can't because the glory is so full in that moment. This should be overwhelming in this moment, right? The people that have failed, the people that were given smaller and smaller glimpses into what Yahweh had intended for them are now giving a double portion, right? They're given more than they ever had been even after their failures. Moses can't enter into the temple because the glory is too full. It's too holy. It's not a punishment. 
It's a gracious and kind and loving God that longs and intends to be near to his people, to fulfill the promises that he had given to them and made with them all the way back to the patriarchs of Abraham in Genesis 12. That he would set apart for himself a people that he would dwell among and that they would be a way and a door for the nations to come and to know him, for all of creation to be invited into his cosmic acts his narrative that he is partaking in and telling and that we would be able to come and to participate in it with him. And the glory comes. And so the second thing that this chapter does, because you remember this is part of the first five books of the Bible, and the whole thing, the first five books, they're telling one big cohesive story, chopped up into five, chopped up to end even more. And it's begging for us again to see that the story continues. And where does it continue? It continues in Leviticus. And what is going to be given to them is this whole set of laws and regulations of how they might be able to step into and interact with and live in and participate in this glory that has come. And so we get a hint at the end of Exodus 40 that this presence, this glory that sits over the tabernacle, that it will become their guide. And this was promised earlier in Exodus as well, that the Spirit would move throughout the wilderness and the desert. And when that cloud moves, the people are supposed to pack everything up and go. And when that cloud sits, they sit with it. And there's this thing that you're seeing that what is called of them is for them to give their lives over fully and completely to the presence of God and His glory and His wonder. That they are being asked to submit to it in a different kind of way. That they are being asked to follow it in a different kind of way in faith and in trust. And really in humanity, if you study around and look at the different mythologies and religions and texts, this is the first kind of interaction where God, a God, a divine being in his creation is doing this kind of thing. That it's a new kind of covenant where it is not demanding or asking perfect allegiance of both parties. It's simply asking that one party would trust and know that the other party is as good and as faithful as they think that he might be. It's a new way of thinking of these things. This is not a one-to-one -one transaction, but it is saying that if you continue to do the things I ask of you, and if you just follow, if you just trust, if you just have faith, I ask nothing else of you. It was always faith in who Yahweh was. It was never works. So it's a crude misunderstanding of the Old Testament to assume that they thought that the works was what would save them. That Leviticus and the law is what would save them. They, just as we do in our own time and space, took that and they manipulated it and changed it. They made it something that it was never intended to be and it became a burden and a heavy yoke on the necks of the people of God. But we see here that it, God's presence comes in spite of their failures. In spite of their inabilities to follow through with what they said they would do, He still comes and He comes in a fuller way than He ever had before. And it sets us up for Leviticus. And this is what I want to say on Leviticus as we get there. Is that this is not then a list of rules that they must perfectly follow for God to want to love them and to be near to them. It is a list of things that they are to do. And the other thing about Leviticus is this is not all the rules. We talked about this earlier in the series. 
we talked about the different ways that like we're, we're seeing a story being told. This is a narrative. And so the list of things that we get, the laws and the rules that we get are doing are, are being told to us so that we can remember something about God, that we can understand something about who he is and his people's response to him. But what this is, is this is a way of being a new creation, a new society, a new people, rules and laws that would bring good sanitary and hygiene like amongst a community of people. Some of the things seem really regressive in Leviticus. It seems really odd. It can seem chauvinistic and, and uh, for sure seem like a, that women are sort of like left on the outside. There's a few pregnant women in this room. In Leviticus, after you give a baby, there was a certain amount of time that you were supposed to go outside of the camp before you had the baby, have the baby, stay out there, and then come back. And everybody's like... <laughs> can't believe they would treat women like that, put them outside the camp. Or did you ever think about the fact that after you have a baby, your baby's supposed to stay home for a certain number of weeks so its immune system can build? Did you ever think about the fact that as women, after you give a birth, you need to recover? You need a few weeks where you can kind of do nothing, where you're off on your own, where you don't have a schedule or a routine, and you can't be expected to make morning prayer at 5 a.m. because you've only slept in two-hour chunks, which is also a form of torture that they use in spies, you know, like... It's what, you, it's what having a newborn is like. They're breaking you down. It's a, it's a game of wills, okay? Anybody that's had a newborn knows that this is true. It's not a regressive act. It's a kindness. It's a forming and a shaping of who the people are meant to be. He's, he's creating for them a new society and culture where they can exist and be alongside one another. And he's doing so by placing his presence right in the middle of them and asking that they would follow. So after they've done everything that they were supposed to, after they had followed all the commands and had done all of the things, we see that he was good to give his presence among them and to do so in a way that surprised and shocked them, I think. That's my reading of it alongside of some other people that are smarter and know more about this than me. I think you see this, and if there's anything that we were going to take away from this series, if there's anything that I would hope that we could like grab a hold of, is that this is who God is. That God is a gracious, forgiving, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love type of God. That He is good, and that He is faithful. And that he will do the things that he says he will do. That he will be good to give to the promises that he says that he is going to give. If we could grab a hold of that idea and understand that that is who God is. Then I think that it would be much easier for us to step into the trust and the faith that is asked of us. But for a myriad of reasons, myself included, most of us spend a lot of our times asking, is God actually as good as he says he is? And we don't maybe actually ask that question on the surface, right? We don't actually, like, we think that we trust and follow God. Much like I tried to draw out last week that the Israelites in the wilderness, I think they really genuinely thought they were worshiping Yahweh when they made that golden calf. They were confused they were bewildered. They were struggling. They were suffering. They, were, they had questions. They wanted to know what happened to Moses. Where did he go? 
And so they, in their own confusion, in their own, they, they lost sight of. They, they got distracted by. They, they picked up what was comfortable, what was normal, and we do the same thing. It's so easy for us in our hurts, in our pains, in our traumas, in our difficulties, for us to get confused by or mixed up on who we think God actually is. It's because for so many of us, the very people that are supposed to be the ones that image God to us the most are some of the ones that have hurt us the most. It's just a reality that most of us live with in human nature. We have these wounds as children, and, and if you've studied Enneagram stuff or have talked about it, like they talk about how like sometimes those wounds don't even have to have actually happened. But your perception is, is that you were wounded by these people that were supposed to image God to you. And for many of us, we had very real wounds that have pained us and that have caused us in some sense to live with the pain and the injury for the rest of our lives on this side of eternity. There is something about it that will mark us and that we will, though we can heal and go back, we'll always sort of feel it or know it or, or understand that that is there and it has marked us and it has changed us. And these things, as they happen to us in our stories, as we meet other people and we find all of these ways that what is supposed to be presenting to us a beautiful picture of God instead causes harm, causes us to question and to wrestle, causes us to say things like, is it really even worth it? All of this happens and we question whether or not God is as good as he says he is. And in so doing, what we begin to do is the very thing they did in Genesis 2 or Genesis 3, the thing they do in the wilderness desert, the thing that the people of God will continue to do again and again, and the thing that we do, which is when we say we cannot trust him, he is not king, ruler, reigner over all the earth, he is not as good as he says he is, I then will become my own little G God, and I will define what is good and right for my life. And that is the interplay that has been happening for the existence of humanity, in my opinion. Maybe painting with really broad brushstrokes and over-reducing it, but I just can't unsee it these days. That so much of our struggle lies in this thing where we just don't trust God. It's easier for us to give explanations and answers to things and difficulties in our lives. It's easy for, for us to try to like reason things out than it is to simply say that I'm in need of a Savior and that God is as good as He says He is and I will trust myself to Him. It's easier for us to define what we think we should be doing, what we think is right, what we think is acceptable, what we think is wise, than to trust that God is as good as He says He is. To trust that He will deliver on the promises that He says He will deliver on. The first sermon I preached in this series, I uh, referenced a guy named Walter Brueggemann. He has a commentary on Exodus. And he says that the primary thing of Exodus is what I called and tried to articulate to you guys, maybe well, maybe not so well, was that we're trying to be, or we're being invited into having a Passover imagination. I want to come back to that and read the, the, that phrase in the context of the whole paragraph that he was talking about here. It says, When we depart the text of Exodus, our world is not miraculously transformed by our reading and good interpretation. 
as we've gone through this series, hear it that way. We are not wildly transformed or changed simply by the fact that we now have a maybe better understanding of Exodus than we did when we started this in the first of June. It's not what changes us. What is affected by our reading and interpretation is only the slow, unnoticed work of a transformed imagination. The book of Exodus invites the reader to pass over imagination, counter-imagination, that is rooted in the sufferings of our ancestors who cried out. It is powered by our ancestors of the exile who treasured the alternative that they were invited into. This is the thing of the Exodus. It's like it, it's a story. It's a narrative. One that we put a lot of trust in and a lot of meaning into. And stories themselves, like he's saying, like it's not going to drastically change you because you know that they were at Sinai for nine months. It's helpful. But that doesn't mean anything in and of itself in terms of what it does to you and how you interact with the rest of your life. What the story does, what we're invited into, is seeing the great need for a God like this and understanding who God actually is. Because we're so quick to forget. We're so quick to let go of it. And what we have to do in our lives is come back again and again and go, no, 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 no. this is who God is. He is who he says he is, and I will follow him, and I will give my life to him. And as we do that, what Brueggemann is saying by a, a Passover imagination is not that the world around us just drastically changes. In fact, many of you know this, like the, the road never actually gets easier. Christianity does not pave the road for us to just like easily walk through life. What it does is it allows us to rethink and reorient and reshape our understanding and ourselves and our approaches to the life that is before us, and it allows us to be prepared to go on this journey. It allows us to see things the way that we are supposed to see them. If you want to use a flying metaphor, it allows us that when we are flying in the dark to be turned right side up so that our navigation and our bearing systems can work the way that they're supposed to work. It changes the way we see the world, how we imagine what is possible and what can be so that when we encounter grief and we encounter difficulty, which is inevitable, we will not just simply go, well, you know, I'm a Christian, so like I don't have to be sad. No, you're terribly sad. It's difficult. It's hard. But you understand that suffering in a different kind of way because you know that God is good to redeem it. That he will take the difficult things, he will take the ashes, and he will bring beauty out of it. That he will meet you in your pain, he will meet you in your suffering, and in your joys and your celebrations. And that he will be present among you in your failures and in your hardships, just as much as he will in your successes and your good times. That he is always with you. And that when you see the world around you, you see that God is present, that he is leading, that he is guiding, and that he is wise, and that he is good. But too often, I think the reason we miss this, the reason Exodus can feel foreign to us, far off, distant, the reason that I think we can read a book like Exodus and kind of go, yeah, I don't, I don't uh, baptize imagination, I don't get it. Passover imagination, like why do we need that? Because the reality of it is, is that for most of us in this room, we're too comfortable in the empire. 
And as I look around this room, I know most of you. Most of you are educated. Most of you would be considered very affluent in the grand scheme of the world of life. Even in the United States, you would be decently well off. We all know where our next meal is coming from. We mostly have a roof over our head, even if your uh, roof doesn't drain all of the things properly like mine doesn't at the moment. So, that's fun. But, like, that's, that's minor problems, y'all. Like, th- we're really comfortable in the empire. As a majority, a majority church, as a culture... Like, the Exodus story, I mean, it meant something to minority culture. 1960s here in Birmingham, like, this meant something to the black church because they were deeply captivated by a God that would take them out of actual oppression and move them somewhere else. And they knew that he would do that for them. It's easy for us to miss that as a majority culture. It's easy for us to miss the pain and the hardship that exists around us. As those that are normative in our life and healthy and, and strong and can kind of just do the things that we do, we don't think we need an exodus. We don't think we need rescued. Life's good for us, man. Like, we're, we're chilling. The things we need rescued from are oftentimes things that God really doesn't mind or want to really mess with. I hate to break it to you, but I, I don't know if Yahweh cares all that much if you don't get to go to the beach three times over the summer. You know, that's not like, you can hashtag blessed it if you want, but like, it's, like that's not, it's not what we're trying to get at. And it's, it's good, go, have fun, enjoy it. That's, that's great. But like, those are the things that we feel like we lament over it. And oh, my life is so terrible. But like, we don't actually think we need to be like brought out of like we, don't, we miss the call of the gospel because I think like if we can get anything as the people of Mosaic in this space right now, 21st century, Birmingham, Alabama, about to be Labor Day, you know, like all of this, like where we are at in this very moment is that what God wants to do with your life is he wants to take you out of where you are and he wants to set you over here and he wants to create for you a whole new society and culture and way of existing and being. And too many of us are way too comfortable over here. And we just want to go back or just stay there. We don't understand the need for this. Because we think the society and culture that we're in is just fine. It's comfortable. It's good. Why, why, like, just tag Jesus into it. It's familiar. It's safe. But yet we miss on the profound glory of God that we're being invited into. Because here's the truth of the reality, is that what we see happening in the desert with Moses and the people of God wandering has been fully revealed and fulfilled in Jesus. And so we stand here today as the New Testament church, people of the 21st century, followers of Jesus. We stand as a people that are in the midst of our own exodus. We're a people that are being called to journey somewhere. This is not our home, and we should not be too comfortable in it. We should feel a tension and an angst when we look around and we see what is broken and wrong in ourselves and in others and in the systems and the powers at hand. We should feel rubbed wrongly by those things. We should be broken by what we see, and yet so often we just are cool with, like, hanging out. We just make Jesus a part of, like, our 
Maslow's hierarchy of needs. It's just one more thing. Like, I just gotta, as long as I got enough church stuff in my life, I got my shelter, my food, my friends, my relationships, my family, and I just, as long as I got enough Jesus, like, I'll be a healthy, whole, fully integrated human being. And listen, I love that kind of language. I'm a sucker for it. It's all I listen to all summer is like psychology and sociology like podcasts. I want to be an integrated human being. I want meditation. I want peace. I want calm. I want, I want to understand myself. But if I think Jesus is just one tool in that to like help me be the actualized full version of myself that I think I should be, then I, I've missed it. Because the call that Jesus has put on us is to take us, his death, burial, and resurrection is so that we can be moved from one thing to a completely other way of living and thinking, of operating and functioning. That we can be over here and that we can become a people that are truly a new culture and a new society. And that's what this becomes. When done correctly and done rightly, we, the people of Mosaic, become that new society, these small little pockets and then you get to go into your homes and your houses, and you get to carry that with you. And this thing that's supposed to be happening in the temple that was happening in the garden, where creation and heaven began to overlap, and they sat over top of each other, and they were, they were united, and they were one, and they were unified. Like, as that happens, that happens here as we gather together. It happens here in this space, and there's this thing where the divine begins to show up, and there's this traffic between us, and we hear from the Lord, and we experience his presence, and then you go, and guess what? Your house, your home, or your space that you live and operate and exist, and you don't have to own it. It doesn't have to have, like, four walls or anything. It can be a classroom. It can be a doctor's office. It can be wherever you work, function, operate, a car that you drive that people are invited into. What happens in that space is that you begin to create these little gardens, just like in Eden, and there's this overlap, and there's this traffic between you, the created, and the divine, and something begins to fester, and it begins to grow, and in that, then you begin to see that this thing that God has called us to is what you get to step into, what you get to be. You get to be heaven here on earth. As this traffic exists and as we step into it and the presence of God fills you by his spirit and you, like Moses, then are supposed to shine and to do that your life has to look different. You have to be set apart because you do not come into holiness on your terms. You do not step into that presence doing things the way that you think you should do them. And that's what we see in Exodus. This is what I'm learning and figuring out about myself of, Forget about you guys. I'm being selfish in this moment. What I've realized is that I'm really terrible at this. I'm very, very prone to do what Jonathan wants to do, to do what's easiest, to do what's right. And if you ask my wife and my children, I am very prone to not living in peace, not being gentle, not being patient. I live with a baseline anxiety. I just sort of hum sometimes. And this is the terrible part. You want to know what's terrible is when you have a dog that you don't even have to say anything or do anything and you can walk, like your energy, you walk in the room because you're anxious and the dog just goes, like she knows. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm like, I'm that high strung right now that she's just like, oh, I don't want to mess with this. I'm, I'm prone to it. I, I, I often find myself living that when I stand before the Lord. I, I don't want this because I know this isn't what this is supposed to be about. 
yeah, my life might be difficult at times. And there's real difficulties that we all face that are way worse than the air quote difficulties that I can make fun of in a sermon. Many of you are walking through them now. Real wounds, real pains, real sufferings. We're not diminishing those at all. But what I'm saying is, is that God is inviting us into something to experience his presence and his goodness and his mercy. And here's what I'm becoming convinced of is as I have this propensity to do this thing, to try to define for myself, as I realize my life might go okay for a while, I can look around and be like, oh man, I got everything I want. Like this is the, the real trick of your late 20s and your early 30s. Some of you, not completely true. For a lot of you, it's kind of worked out. You slowly pay some things off, do what you want, get the degree, get married, have the kid, maybe struggle having the kid. Like there's these bumps in the road, but for a lot of us, life works out the way we think that it should. And it's really easy to think that like we've just done all that. And yet we find that like in the midst of all of this, we've missed this radical call of what God would have for us. This radical thing that he wants us to come over here and to be defined by something different. And we have this propensity to miss it. Because the, the thing is, is for so many of us, myself included, when I start living that way, yeah, it's easier, it's good, it's fine, whatever. But I know that like at the end of the day, I'm not really happy. Like, am I happier for it? Did those things that I think that I needed, did they, I don't know about you, but I know my list, it, it, I just was thinking about this like a year ago. I was like, man, I've checked so many things off my list. If, if I just had this, if I just, and it, they're really petty and small, you'd be embarrassed if you knew my list. Like, and I'm like, I got it. And then what happens? You just add new things to the list. And you live in that tension and that anxiety of wanting more, needing more, thinking if this thing happens, but what God is calling you to is to trust him. And so this is where the rules and things come from. This is the next thing we could get out of Exodus. What I would say is like we get this thing that happens. We see this setup for Leviticus. It is not because God thinks you should earn his presence or his salvation. It is not because he thinks that you need to do all these things because he's a mean, cruel God. No, he's a loving, kind, and caring God. And what he says is, I realize that humanity struggles and they have a propensity to kind of fall off the way and I long to be with them so much that I will lay out clearly ways in which this works really, really well. And we would be good here in the 21st century to look back at the last 2,000 years of the church and to go, hey, like, I get it. Like, I, I get that it seemed legalistic and, and it was used and misabused and, like, there were ways in which we totally got it wrong. But maybe... That this has existed, that the church for 2,000 years has thought that these things seem to matter. That reading your Bible daily, that praying with your family, coming and gathering to worship to be reminded and recentered and to restory and retell the goodness of God. That these things matter. That maybe our sexuality and how we respond to God matters. Maybe how I spend my money matters. Not because it earns our salvation, not because it's, it's what God like, demands of us because he demands something like extreme from us, but because he knows we have a propensity to wander. We have a propensity to try to define for ourselves. And so he says, here, let me give you some ways in which this will lead you into the life that I long for you. A life of joy, contentment, peace, patience life of gentleness and ease, though difficult and sorrowful at times, a life of celebration, a life in where you're actually able to experience those things, where you're actually able to name anger, name sadness, and also be able to celebrate 
yourself and one another. Like there's so much that he wants to invite us into. And I think this is the book of Exodus that we would, as we end, we would go on this journey together. That we would exodus out of something and towards something. And in scripture, what we're exiting towards is the fulfillment of the kingdom. It's been initiated by Jesus. So as the band comes up, we're going to take communion. And every Sunday, like in a lot of ways, this is what we're acknowledging and naming. That Christ and his life, his passion and his resurrection, that he came and was a better mediator than Moses, a better sacrifice than the temple system. And when I say he was a better Moses, this doesn't mean that he was like the PS5 of Moses's. You know, like he wasn't just an upgraded version. Wasn't the newest iPhone version of Moses. Like he was a truer and better Moses. He was more Moses than Moses could have ever been. But he did fulfill the things that Moses was called to. He, he continued the things that Moses was after. He became the mediator and the sacrifice and the very way in which we are called and invited into the life in God. And just as it was with the cloud that descends over the tabernacle, so it is that the Spirit descends upon our lives and we go where the Spirit goes. We follow Jesus and for whatever reason Jesus claims and we believe that He is the way, the truth, and the life. And that no one accesses that glory and that goodness without Him. And so we go where Jesus tells us to go. We do the things that Jesus tells us to do. We go the way of the cross. And in that we find life and hope and resurrection. We go and follow where he would lead as he is king and ruler over all of the universe. In the same way that they followed, we follow. And this is the language all over the New Testament. In the Gospels, you see that the primary thing is that they're doing is that they're following Jesus on his exodus, on his journey to Jerusalem. We see that they are called to go on their own journey to, to experience this presence. So as we come and we take the elements, grab a piece of the bread and the cup, go back to your seats and hold on to them. There's gluten-free on this side if you need that. Hold on to those things and just think for a moment what it means to give yourself to that to partake that and allow it to change you and transform you. To become a part of this thing. To experience the presence of God in this moment. And I pray that over all of us that as we hold on to these elements that we would be overwhelmed by the fullness and the glory of who God is. That we would sit or stand in this moment and hold those elements and be just completely overwhelmed by his goodness and his mercy, that we would be able to trust and give ourselves to God in a different kind of way. Hold on to those elements. After the band plays the one song, I'll come back up and I'll lead us in the taking of the elements in, and we'll receive from one body and one cup together as a community. But I just invite you in this moment, do not miss what Jesus is calling you into. Do not miss what he would have for you in this space and this time. As you take these elements and allow it to do the thing that it did to Moses, which is to change you and transform you in such a way that we would continue to be the reflection and the light of his glory to a wanting and waiting world around us.
So come and receive the gifts of God for the people.